This is History 2311, Week 8A, The Cold War. Stop! Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please, listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! So this is the trailer for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, a movie from 1956 directed by Don Siegel about an invasion of alien pod people from another world. They come from another world, spawned in the light years. Obviously, this is not a realistic representation of life in 1956, any more than Gold Diggers of 1933 was a realistic representation of 1933. That was a dream of prosperity in the midst of the depression, and this here is a nightmare. And dreams and nightmares aren't real, but they can be revealing in their way. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. Now, the obvious reading of this source is that the body snatchers and all the other alien invasions of 1950s movies are a metaphor for communism. The body snatchers are aliens that look like us. They take over our minds and bodies. They infiltrate our society one by one. And that was the fear with communism. It wasn't just a foreign army. It was a set of ideas that could destroy America from within. Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. And that's a very valid reading, but it's not the only reading of this source. The body snatchers could also be a metaphor for conformity, for consumerism. They can even be a metaphor for hysterical anti-communism. And when reading a historical source like this, the point is not to prove a one-to-one -one correlation, to say that this definitely symbolizes this. Instead, this is a way to get into the mindset of a different era, a way to try to imagine what it felt like to be an American at the dawn of the atomic age, the dawn of the Cold War. My lecture today will trace the origins of the Cold War, the first few years of the Cold War from the end of the Second World War in 1945 to the early 1950s, when the Cold War had kind of locked into a semi-permanent state. These first few years were plastic years where things might have gone differently. And so ever since, people have argued about who ought to be blamed for starting the Cold War. I don't generally find the blame game a very useful way of doing history. But if you really want to look for culprits, I guess we might start with the leaders of the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time, Truman and Stalin. It would be hard to argue that Harry Truman was prepared for the job he was thrust into in April 1945 when Franklin Roosevelt's death made him the president of the United States. The story people always tell is that Truman immediately went to Eleanor Roosevelt, FDR's widow, and said, Mrs. Roosevelt, is there anything I can do for you? And Eleanor said, oh, Harry, you are the one that is in trouble now. Harry Truman was the only 20th century president who did not go to college. I think he took some night school classes, but that's basically it. He was a career politician from Missouri. He rose up through the Democratic Party ranks, mainly because he was loyal and kept his mouth shut. Truman was in no way one of Roosevelt's inner circle. He hadn't been vice president all along. He only became vice president in January 1945, a few months before Roosevelt died. The two men had only ever met alone twice. 
And this meant that Truman was not up to speed on the very complicated political games that Roosevelt had been playing to win the war, to negotiate with Stalin and Churchill and so on. And I think you can see that if you contrast the documents from the Tehran and Yalta conferences that have now been posted for your second primary source assignment with Roosevelt pressing Stalin, negotiating with Stalin on questions like Poland. If you contrast that with the primary sources you're reading for this week, which include transcripts of Truman meeting with the Soviet diplomat Molotov, for better or for worse, Truman is just a lot more straightforward, simpler, not silver-tongued and slippery and sneaky like Roosevelt could be. Which is not to say we should blame the Cold War on Harry Truman. If you wanted to blame the Cold War on one person, it's hard to find a better culprit than Joseph Stalin. Stalin was, of course, a brutal, paranoid, murderous dictator. By the end of the Second World War, Stalin was 65 years old. He was physically exhausted, but he was still cunning and he was still firmly in control. He had systematically eliminated all of his rivals in Russia through a series of bloody purges going back to the 1930s. And Stalin's first priority was always security for himself, then for his regime, then for Russia, and then for communism in that order. And in the Cold War, the same paranoia that led Stalin to exterminate millions of his own people got projected onto the whole world stage. Stalin wanted to ensure that the Soviet Union would never again face an invasion like the Nazi invasion of World War II. The way he planned to ensure that was to carve up Germany and to build a permanent perimeter of vassal states around the Soviet Union in Finland, Poland, the Baltic states, down into Iran and Turkey. At the same time, Stalin knew what many dictators know, which is that having an external enemy often strengthens authoritarian regimes. It gives them someone to blame for poverty and hardship. It justifies jailing dissenters and curtailing liberties and being tough on their own people. And after 1945, Stalin grew increasingly belligerent towards his former allies in the West. He said that war between communist and capitalist nations was inevitable and that the Soviet Union would support workers' revolutions against capitalism everywhere in the world. And we've talked before about the universal character of American ideals, uh, that Americans have often imagined a global mission for their country, that all men are created equal, that America has a mission to bring freedom to the whole world. In the Soviet Union, in the early days of the Cold War, the United States found itself facing a rival whose outlook, or at least its rhetoric, was just as global as its own, just as universal as its own, a rival who also had a mission, a, a vision for the entire world. This is like the point in the movie where the hero meets the villain and the villain says, we are not so different, you and I. And the Cold War was full of weird doublings and reflections, a real wilderness of mirrors. But we shouldn't focus solely on the leaders because really nobody planned or even wanted the Cold War. The Cold War grew out of a series of little crises of skirmishes between the US and the Soviets, each one deepening the hostility and mistrust. We've already talked about the disputes over Poland that emerged even before the war was over at Yalta and then at Potsdam. After the war's end, the next big showdown was over Iran. 
You could see here that Iran borders what was once the Soviet Union. It also borders Pakistan, which before the Second World War was under British control. The British and the Soviets had both invaded Iran during the Second World War, but they made an agreement that they would both withdraw all of their troops in 1945. But the Soviets didn't, and they tried to set up a kind of puppet regime in the northern province of Azerbaijan. In early 1946, the United States confronted the Soviets about this in the Security Council of the newly formed United Nations, and the Soviets did back down. Then in the summer of 1946, there was a similar showdown over control of the Turkish Straits between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. It might be easier to see on this map. The Soviets were trying to control these straits, and this time Truman dispatched a battleship to Istanbul, uh, and again, the Soviets backed down, but the fact that it took a battleship this time rather than just stern words at the United Nations was worrying. In early 1947, a crisis in Greece took things to a whole new level. After Greece had been liberated from the Nazis, a civil war erupted between monarchist and communist forces there. The British had troops in Greece and they were supporting the old Greek monarchy, but the British were exhausted and out of money. And early in 1947, they told the Truman government that they were going to pull out of Greece and that if the United States wanted to save the Greek monarchy, they would have to back it. So Truman went to Congress in March 1947 to request $400 million in aid for both Greece and Turkey. This was small potatoes compared to the $300 billion the U.S. had spent fighting World War II. But by 1947, Congress and the American people were tired of shelling out money for foreign aid, and they couldn't really see why the internal politics of Greece or Turkey was their problem. A Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg told Truman that if he wanted support in Congress for this aid, he was going to have to, quote, scare hell out of the American people. And so Truman gave a famous speech, uh, which you have excerpts from in your readings, where he cast the Greek Civil War as not an internal Greek affair, but part of a worldwide struggle between different ways of life. Truman said, it must be the policy of the United States to support free people who are resisting subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures. And this became known as the Truman Doctrine. And even though the speech made no direct mention of communism or the Soviets, Truman was effectively committing to fight the spread of communism all over the world. The Truman Doctrine was followed by the Marshall Plan, which we talked about last time, an ambitious aid package for Western Europe that had a humanitarian purpose, but also was clearly intended to fight the spread of communism. And Truman worked to sell these policies to the American people, but to sell them, he had to scare them. He had to, he had to raise the stakes. He had to convince Americans that this was not just about Greece or about Turkey, that this was a real battle for the future of the world. A week after the Truman Doctrine speech, Truman signed Executive Order 9835, which established the first general loyalty program in the United States. He authorized the FBI to investigate the loyalty 
of some 4 million federal employees to see if they had ever belonged to any seditious or communist organizations. And if they had, they then had to somehow demonstrate their patriotism without being allowed to confront their accusers or even see the evidence against them. And they could be fired if reasonable doubt existed concerning their loyalty. One reason Truman was doing this was he was responding to Republican victories in the 1946 midterms. And so he wanted to show that he was getting tough on the Soviets, getting tough on communism. But by doing so, he opened the door to red scare hysteria that would soon be targeted at his government. The Cold War got its name a month later in April 1947 in a speech by a billionaire financier named Bernard Baruch. Baruch's speech was actually an anti-union speech. He was calling for longer work weeks. He was arguing that unions would not be, should not be allowed to strike. He was basically arguing that the wartime state of emergency was still in effect. He said, let us not be deceived. We are today in the midst of a cold war. And this phrase, cold war, stuck. And today we talk about the Cold War like it was a non-controversial fact, like everyone accepted this is the Cold War. And that certainly came to be true, but it is worth remembering that the phrase itself came from a speech by a billionaire explaining that workers' rights should be curtailed because the world situation was something close to war. And this is just another example of how the Cold War always blurred the lines between domestic politics and international politics. In the international sphere, the most critical showdown of the early Cold War was in Berlin. After the war, Germany had been divided into four zones, an American zone, a British, a French zone, and a Soviet zone. And then the city of Berlin, even though it was well inside the Soviet sector, was also itself divided into the same four zones. But as time went on, there was more and more disagreement between the former allies about how to administer occupied Germany. In 1948, the three Western powers introduced a new currency, the Deutschmark, into their zones and also the three Western sectors of Berlin. And Marshall Plan money started flowing into the Western zones of Germany. But the Soviets did not want Germany to be reunified. And so they tried to block the aid and the currency from coming in. And they went so far as to cut off railway and highway access to Berlin from the West. With Berlin kind of taken hostage by the Soviets, the Truman administration took a gamble and started resupplying the city with food and aid by air, flying supplies into Berlin from the West. It was one thing for the Soviets to stop trucks and trains, but the Americans gambled that the Soviets would not risk a war by shooting down Allied transport planes. This became known as the Berlin Airlift, a sort of steady stream of planes bringing supplies into Berlin. Planes that in many cases had been dropping bombs on Berlin only a few years before. And the Berlin Airlift went on for nearly a year before the Soviets called off the blockade. Through all of these crises, the mood in Washington was one of anxiety and kind of bewilderment. American policymakers just did not understand the Soviets. They did not really know how to read the choices they were making. Many people still hoped that the United States and the Soviets could remain allies. Henry Wallace, who was Roosevelt's old vice president before Truman, was still making this pitch. But others thought this was naive, and they, they said war with the Soviets is inevitable. 
In February of 1946, an American diplomat named George Kennan, who was stationed at the US Embassy in Moscow, sent a document to his superiors in Washington that became known as the Long Telegram. The Long Telegram was Kennan's analysis of how Soviet foreign policy worked, of how Stalin thought, and how he thought the Soviet Union ought to be dealt with. And the State Department and ultimately the whole Truman administration kind of seized on the long telegram. It became the first canonical text of American Cold War policy. Kennan's analysis was in a way both pessimistic and optimistic. It was pessimistic because he said, no friendship is possible with the Soviet Union. No friendship is possible with a nation so xenophobic, so paranoid, and so ideological as Stalin's USSR. But it was also optimistic because Kennan did think that war could be avoided. What Kennan called for instead of war was a policy of containment. He said the United States must contain the Soviet Union. It must stop it from expanding without trying to roll it back. And Kennan said containment is not about blustering or being tough. He said, he said being tough could be fatal. He said the United States had to play it very cool, had to be firm but calm, and had to stay the course for decades if necessary until eventually communism would collapse of its own internal contradictions. The long telegram made Kennan a kind of celebrity in Washington power circles, and he got promoted to a key position in the State Department. But it was not long before the meaning of containment began to shift. And Kennan actually came to feel, a little bit like Truman before him, that he had done his job of warning the American people all too well. Kennan wrote the long telegram in 1946. By, say, 1949, the Cold War was changing. The battle lines were getting much harder. And someone like Kennan, who seemed to be tough on Russia in, say, 1946, 1947, by 1949, looked a little soft. This is because in the summer of 1949, the Soviet Union tested its first atomic bomb. Americans had expected that their monopoly over the bomb would last six, eight, maybe even 20 years they considered the atomic bomb a crucial counterweight to the strength of the Red Army, but the Soviet atomic test exploded those hopes. And just a few weeks after that, in October 1949, a victorious Mao Zedong proclaimed the formation of the Communist People's Republic of China. I mentioned last week that the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists had been fighting for control of China for some time, against Europeans, against the Japanese, and against each other. Mao's victory, the communist victory, was a surprise to both the United States and the Soviet Union. Both, I think, had expected Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists to keep control. But Chiang's regime was kind of ruinously corrupt and inefficient and was not loved by the people. And by 1949, the nationalists were defeated and fled to the island of Taiwan. Mao's victory did not necessarily mean that China would become a Soviet satellite. The US had reason to hope that there would be real tensions between China and the Soviet Union. But Mao was actually probably a more devout Marxist than Stalin, and he pressed for a close alliance with the Soviet Union. In 1950, China and the Soviets signed the Sino-Soviet Treaty, pledging an alliance together against the capitalist West. 
So this was, you have to understand, a terrifying, sickening time for Americans. The most populous nation on the earth was suddenly communist. Suddenly one third of the earth's population was living under communist rule and they had the atomic bomb. Republican critics of the Truman administration began howling that Truman had, quote, lost China. You could argue whether China was ever America's to lose, but this was the language they used. And they charged that the American government itself was honeycombed with communist traitors. This is the corrosive politics of fear. Truman had, you know, Truman had talked up the communist threat in order to convince Americans of the importance of aid to Europe. But by encouraging these anxieties, he unleashed a wave of fear that America itself was being subverted by communist spies and saboteurs. So he was kind of reaping what he had sowed. Again, this is characteristic of the Cold War, this blurring of domestic politics and international affairs. Truman had opened the door to the Red Scare, but it was Republicans that made hay of it. In 1946, an ambitious young Richard Nixon, I think he was just like 28 years old, won election to Congress by denouncing his Democratic opponent, Jerry Voorhees, as a communist. When Nixon ran for Senate just four years later, his opponent was a Broadway Hollywood actress turned politician named Helen Gahagan Douglas. Nixon famously said that Douglas was, quote, pink right down to her underwear, which was kind of a clever way of combining anti-communism with sexism. And by smearing Douglas as pink, uh, Nixon won by a comfortable margin, making him, I think, one of the youngest senators ever at 32. But Nixon was just one example. After almost two decades of Democratic domination, remember the Democrats had dominated Congress all through the Roosevelt years, Republicans found in anti-communism a kind of route back to power and electoral success. While he was still in the House, Nixon got himself a seat on the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC. And the HUAC had been established back in 1938 to investigate subversive activities in the United States. By 1946, it was sort of a dud committee, but Republicans like Nixon, along with a number of conservative Southern Democrats, revived the committee. And in 1947, HUAC launched a series of very well-publicized hearings to investigate communist influence in Hollywood. They called well-known screenwriters and directors and actors to testify before the committee and discovered that this was a great way to get national publicity. In the photo on the left here, I think the people standing are Danny Kaye, Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren Bacall. There's probably more stars that I don't recognize. Some Hollywood figures, including Walt Disney and the actor Ronald Reagan, testified that yes, there were communists in the movie industry. And 10 screenwriters and producers who refused to answer questions about their political beliefs or to provide names of communists ended up being charged with contempt of Congress and went to prison and became known as the Hollywood 10. A much longer list of artists were accused of communist sympathies and blacklisted or boycotted by the Hollywood studios. The following year, HUAC set its sights higher still and charged that communist spies and sympathizers held important positions in the Truman government. 
a former Soviet agent, Whitaker Chambers, came forward and named half a dozen officials in the Truman administration and the Roosevelt administration, saying that they had given him secret documents to pass on to the Soviets. One of the names he named was Alger Hiss, a high-ranking State Department official. And after a long investigation and trial, Hiss was convicted of lying to Congress. Now, people still argue about whether or not Hiss really was a spy for the Soviets, but it does seem that he was a member of the Communist Party and that he lied about it to Congress. And in the climate of the time, people really didn't make distinctions between spies and communists. The assumption came to be that all spies were communists and all communists were spies. It was Nixon who brought down Alger Hiss and bringing Hiss down made Nixon a national figure. So it was that in 1952, when General Dwight Eisenhower ran for president as a Republican, the party chose Nixon as his vice presidential running mate. Eisenhower was kind of a moderate. In fact, both parties, the Democrats and Republicans, had both pursued him, the famous general who commanded the U.S. troops in Europe. Both parties had pursued him as a potential presidential candidate. But because Ike was a moderate, Republicans wanted Nixon on the ticket to keep the hard anti-communist right wing of the party happy. Two weeks after the conviction of Alger Hiss, a senator from Wisconsin, Joseph R. McCarthy, gave a speech in which he claimed to have a list of 205 known communists working for the State Department. There probably was no such list. McCarthy never ended up identifying a single person guilty of disloyalty. But McCarthy was theatrical and brash and good at self-promotion, and he rapidly became the face of anti-communism in America. McCarthy went after the State Department, he went after the Defense Department, he went after communists in the U.S. Army. And he was so prominent for a few years that some people used the word McCarthyism as a label for hysterical anti-communism. In fact, they even call this, some people even call this, the McCarthy era. I've never liked that label. I know that McCarthy had everyone eating out of his hand for a few years, but calling this whole phenomenon, the Red Scare anti-communism, calling this whole thing McCarthyism, I actually think it gives McCarthy way too much significance. And it also kind of lets everybody else off the hook. I mean, why not call it Nixonism? Or better yet, Hooverism. McCarthy grabbed the headlines for a few years, but J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, not the president, Herbert Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover hunted Reds for 50 years from the 1920s into the 1970s. He grew the FBI into a massive internal police force. He got dirt on everyone. Why not name the era after him? The point is, whatever you want to call it, the Red Scare was much bigger than just McCarthy or HUAC or Alger Hiss or the Hollywood 10. And it's not just something that happened in Washington, something that happened in Congress. All sorts of institutions and professions all over the country uh, created their own loyalty oaths and tried to purge leftists and communists from their ranks. Teachers, lawyers, doctors, pharmacists, even professional wrestlers were required to sign loyalty oaths to keep their jobs, to swear that they had never belonged to subversive organizations. And the great majority of those who were fired or even jailed during this era were guilty of nothing more than engaging in lawful political activities and holding unpopular beliefs, or indeed in holding popular beliefs that later became unpopular. 
a lot of people joined leftist groups in the 1930s, and it was not illegal to be a communist. That did not make them Soviet spies. But if your name ended up on one of these lists, if they dug up evidence that you had joined a socialist organization back in the 30s, there was very little you could do. You could resign, you could lose your job, and most of the people whose lives were ruined were not Hollywood celebrities or communist agents. They were ordinary people. They were union members. They were teachers. They were ministers who had been politically active in the Depression years. The Red Scare was also accompanied by a kind of moral panic about homosexuals in government. In 1952, a Republican Senator, Everett Dirksen, said that Americans had to vote Republican to get the, quote, lavender lads out of the State Department. And lavender lads was a euphemism for gay men. So the persecution of gay men in this era is sometimes called the Lavender Scare, although that's a name we've given to the period in retrospect. I don't think anyone called it that at the time. But the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare were clearly linked. Whitaker Chambers, the Soviet agent who accused Alger Hiss, was himself gay. And there was always innuendo that Hiss and Chambers had some kind of relationship. This fed a narrative that gay men and women, but especially gay men, were security risks. Uh, because they kept their sexuality secret, the, the thinking went that they were vulnerable to being seduced by Soviet agents or being blackmailed. But this fed and fed on an even looser stereotype that homosexuality was just somehow linked to communism because it was secret and, and because it was deviant. Uh, the historian Arthur Schlesinger argued that communism was a psychosis. He said it was something secret, sweaty, and furtive, like homosexuality at a boys' school. And so as the FBI and others investigated the loyalty of government employees, often they didn't find evidence of communism, but they, they did find people who were gay. And thousands of people in the government, the military, teachers, and so on, were investigated for being gay and maybe hundreds were fired, but a much larger number resigned simply to avoid further investigation or scandal. This is often true of witch hunts. It was true of the original witch hunts in Salem in the 1600s. After a certain point, anti-communism and the hunt for communists almost wasn't even about communism. It just became a club that people used to beat their enemies. Remember that the Republicans had been out of power for almost 20 years now, and the New Deal, in retrospect, was still very popular. Social Security, the WPA, people looked back on these things and said, Roosevelt was a great president. He brought us out of the Depression. He led us to win the war. The Republican hunt for communists in government was, in a way, a kind of proxy way of attacking the New Deal, a way of saying, yes, but this New Deal was honeycombed with socialists and communists all along. The Red Scare at home was not always logically connected to the geopolitical struggle with the Soviet Union abroad, but fear at home fueled international fears and vice versa. In the spring of 1950, the National Security Council wrote a top secret document for Truman called NSC 68, which called for quadrupling the peacetime military budget. Now Truman and most Americans had hoped and assumed that the end of World War II would mean the shrinking of the military. And Truman was trying to hold the military budget to something like $14 billion, which was high by pre-war standards, but which in a few years would seem penny ante. 
But NSC 68 said no. It said, in fact, the United States needed to increase the size of its military. It needed to increase defense spending to something like 40 or $50 billion per year to increase the atomic arsenal and to start working on the hydrogen bomb, which was a new super weapon, a thousand times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. NSC 68 also said that this expansion of the military, this expansion of the national security state was going to last for years for the foreseeable future and that the American people would need to be trained to accept such sacrifices. NSC 68 used the language of containment, but the meaning of containment had clearly shifted. Kennan in 1947 had seen the Soviets as really a political threat more than a military one. Kennan always said the Soviets don't want war. They will back down as long as they are not cornered or provoked. What Kennan meant by containment was long-term patient diplomacy. But NSC 68 presented the Soviets as an immediate and pressing military threat. It said they might strike at any moment. It argued that all-out war was not just possible, but likely in the next few years. Truman himself was appalled by NSC 68 at first, but he did not think he could ignore it or reject it. But the bald statement of what was required, the military buildup it demanded, the amount of money it demanded, he said it would doom everything he still hoped to do as president. He also worried that just if it got out, it would cause panic. In fact, he, he said that if, if Stalin saw the document, it could start a war. So Truman ordered all copies of the document either destroyed or locked up in the Oval Office. And there it sat until something happened to make up Truman's mind which was that in June 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea. Before World War II, Korea was a puppet of the Japanese empire. And in 1945, it was divided like Germany into a Soviet occupied zone in the North and an American occupied zone in the South. But unlike Germany, Korea was not an area of major strategic concern for the United States. And actually in 1949, the US withdrew all of its troops from Korea. And the Soviets, thinking that Korea didn't really matter to the United States, gave the North Korean leader, Kim Il-sung, the green light to take over the South. The American reaction to the invasion of South Korea showed how much things had changed in just a few months. Even though Korea didn't really matter strategically to the US, it now had immense symbolic importance. The Truman administration could not lose another Asian nation to communism. So the United States used the United Nations to organize a coalition force, which led by General Douglas MacArthur, landed at Incheon, right in the middle of this map, and soon drove the North Koreans back almost all the way to the Chinese border. But then the Chinese started sending troops into North Korea. They didn't declare war directly, but something like half a million Chinese troops, quote, volunteered to fight alongside the North Koreans and drove MacArthur's forces southward all the way down to Pusan. MacArthur demanded more troops to fight back. He wanted authorization from Truman to bomb Manchuria, that is China, and indeed to use atomic weapons if necessary. But Truman and his administration said no. They were certain that bombing China would trigger a full-scale war with China and probably, given the Sino-Soviet Treaty, would trigger full-scale war with the Soviet Union. 
So the Korean War settled into a bloody stalemate with troops lined up along the 38th parallel, which was the pre-war border. And although Truman couldn't admit it publicly, this was actually the best outcome he could hope for. This is the problem with going to war on symbolic grounds. Was Korea, for the Americans, worth provoking World War III? Truman felt that the United States could not afford to lose the Korean War. It would be too great a blow to American prestige. But at the same time, the United States could not afford to win the war either. MacArthur wanted more troops. He wanted to use atomic bombs. But Truman believed that if he gave MacArthur free reign, if he defeated North Korea for real, that that would provoke World War III. Anyway, in the wake of all this, in September 1950, Truman adopted NSC 68 as a statement of U.S. policy, and he also authorized construction of the hydrogen bomb. By 1953, the U.S. defense budget was more than $50 billion, just as NSC 68 had called for. The long stalemate of the Korean War destroyed the second half of Truman's presidency, just as he feared NSC 68 would do, and contributed to Eisenhower's victory in 1952. The Koreans signed a ceasefire in July of 53, after about a million Korean and Chinese deaths and maybe 50,000 dead Americans. But no peace treaty was ever signed. I, technically, I think the two Koreas are still at war. And all this is the twisty logic of the Cold War. While Truman came into the White House in 1945, a fairly simple man, by the 1950s, he had become a very apt pupil of Cold War logic. Weapons that you built, even though you hoped never to use them, and wars you could lose by winning. All this was the weirdness of the Cold War. Thanks very much for watching.